0: The Secret of Russia's Consecration by David Rodriguez An evening conference from Fatima, Why the Time is Now David Rodriguez holds a Master's in Theology from the University of Dallas and is the Content Director of the Fatima Center. His talk, given in Washington, D.C. on June 14, 2022, provides reasons for why God has chosen Russia alone to be consecrated. Right order on earth should mirror the perfect order of heaven. The devil seeks to upturn this. Revolution is the destruction of God's right order. One must diagnose the problem correctly, the heirs of Russia, in order to understand God's perfect solution, the Immaculate Heart of Mary.
1: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to Thy protection, implored Thy helpers, sought Thy intercession, was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto Thee, O Virgins of Virgins of My Mother. To Thee do I come, before Thee I kneel, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word Incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in Thy mercy, hear and answer me. Amen. Our Lady Fatima, pray for us. In the Father and in the Son of the Holy Ghost, Amen. History indicates why Our Lady has chosen Russia, and so I think what Hugh has already spoken is a great prelude to this, although be coming at it from a different angle. So, very quickly, just to give you the overview of where we're headed, we want to look at the solution, but for that we also need to know the problem. Uh, we want to look at God's right order. We want to look at the secrets, the three secrets of Fatima. And then we're going to take a look at atheism, schism, and also the whole church-state issue, especially that's typified, has been typified, in the Holy Roman Empire. So that's sort of where we're going. Now, just so you know, there is a lot in this talk. And a lot of it really does need to be fleshed out, and I won't have the time to do it all. So what I'm hoping is to give you almost snapshots and ideas so that you can then make many more connections. And keep following all of these things because what I'm trying to give you really is, I would say, almost like a bird's eye view or or a big perspective of what is taking place with Fatima. Why I want to do this in particular is precisely because with the recent act by Francis on March 25th, 2022, this consecration, there was certainly a lot more attention put on the consecration than ever before. That was good. A lot of people were talking about it. But I also thought that a lot of people didn't understand what was supposed to take place or how it's supposed to take place. And so there's a lot of people that maybe are thinking it has been done. There's confusion about it. And obviously, for the Fatima Center, it's very important that we educate all Catholics on these matters. So I think with this kind of understanding that I'm trying to present here, as well as what I did in the talk that we gave earlier on this tour in Tulsa, and the ones I'm going to be giving soon in the next few weeks, people will hopefully start getting a better understanding and a handle on what this consecration is about. Why? Because then there shouldn't be this confusion if we have another attempted consecration. In fact, I would encourage you just right now, I'll mention it, get the Fatima Crusader. It's our flagship magazine. We have some copies back there. But the latest issue, the newest issue was just sent to the press. So it's not even out yet. I'm hoping that by around June 20th, so that's in a week or so, it will actually start hitting the post offices in Canada and the United States. So for those of you that get the crusader within a couple of weeks you should be getting your issue, but the entire issue is dedicated to this question of whether or not what was done on March 25th was in fact the consecration that i asked. And the answer is a resounding no. So there's a lot more we put there for you. But in that article, one of my favorite pages is just a one-page snapshot. And what we show is we show a list of 14 different papal consecrations since 1942 that have been done. And they all continue to fail, you know, leading up to 2022. So again, that's why if people understood what, what this means, what's supposed to take place with the consecration, then I don't think we would have such confusion. And so I'm hoping to impart some of that to you. And then hopefully you can go out to all of your circles and your parishes and your families and the people you know, and share that knowledge with them, or, you know, share this video online. So, very simply, God always provides for us the perfect solution, right? He's God. So, that should be sort of a no-brainer for us as Catholics. However, we also need to understand the problem, and the correct problem. Because, obviously, if you don't know the problem correctly, then the solution's not going to match up. I think that's the other issue sometimes. Maybe we don't actually know what the problem is. And even in some of what Hugh was speaking of, I think he was hinting at that as well. So what's the solution? Hopefully people know the solution. We'll start there. And I'm going to spend just a little bit of time on that. We're going to go through that rather briefly. But basically, uh, there are two things. And I'm not even going to touch one of them right now. And that's the first Saturday devotion, which is very, very important. We must make reparation in the Immaculate Heart of Mary with this community of devotions. So we're going to dedicate other talks to that and other issues, but that is part of the solution. Then we have the second solution. Both of these, again, were spoken by our Blessed Mother herself on July 13th, 1917. So the idea is God wishes to save many souls, and God wishes to grant us peace in our world. Really, God wishes to grant us the greatest graces this world has witnessed, but He's going to do it through the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So the Immaculate Heart of Mary is central to the Fatima devotion. And the communion of reparation is connected to that. It's reparation for those sins against the Immaculate Heart of Mary, but also this consecration, which is a consecration to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So it's the Pope in union with the bishops that are to consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. It's supposed to be done in a public ceremony and on a day of worldwide reparation. So there's really sort of seven things there, and that's what the the magazine The Crusader will go into. So again, I'm not going to spend too much time on that, just very briefly a few of these points. If we want to know what the problem is, we can certainly turn to Our Lady Fatima, and we're going to do that in this talk in a little bit, but we can also turn to the Popes, and the Popes' official teaching. A fantastic book, if you could get it and read it and study it, is a book called The Popes Against Modern Errors. Now, really, all it is is his papal encyclicals. So you didn't have to get the book. All the papal encyclicals are online. You can get them, or you can buy them in their little you know, bound packages, however you want. Um, but this is a very important book because I would maintain that really, starting around 1832, this is with Gregory XVI, so this is really following the Great French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars that have ravaged Europe, the popes really started realizing that they had to fight what I'll call right now the growing revolution. It involves liberalism. It involves what ultimately becomes communism. It involves the evolutionism that Hugh was talking about, many other isms, ideological errors. And the popes were doing, I believe, a a good job at it in terms of that they were accurately teaching the faith and they were warning and they're like the watchtower, sounding the bell, letting people know what, what the Catholic truth is and how to fight and resist this growing revolution. Now, unfortunately, I would say that as a whole, the world and the Catholic world didn't listen to them sufficiently. But in these popes, God was basically giving us the solution for our times. So there's a poison that's infecting us, and the popes are providing the antidote. So this is why we still have to go back to the popes, because the antidote is there. In fact, if you read some of these documents, you'll be surprised, I think... Mirare Vos is the first one we'll mention from 1832. It sounds like it was written today. I've done this with groups of people at parishes and they read this document. They're like, how was this written 150, 200 years ago? Now it's closer to 200. So we need to read these. And unfortunately, the solutions are here. The popes have given them to us and we're not paying attention. Catholics are largely ignorant of this. And I'll tell you how shocked I am because for me, reading these encyclicals changed a lot of things. But I'm so shocked because even now, talking to seminarians that I know, so young men that are studying for the priesthood, and I was in the seminary also, uh, but in this case, I'm talking about seminarians who are studying to become priests in the traditional orders. So those that are meant to recover and restore the faith. You know, groups like the Fraternity of St. Peter, for example. But I will talk to them and I'll ask them, so what about these papal encyclicals? Are you studying them in the seminaries? And they're not. They're not studying them. I was shocked to hear that, that that actually angered me considerably, because again, this is the antidote for our times. We need to study these things. And again, it's not something that I, David, I'm nobody, I'm telling you this, it's something that our popes taught us with their full teaching authority. So let's just look at a few of these things very briefly as they laid out the problem. Let's turn to Pope St. Pius X in his inaugural encyclical address when he first became pope in Es Supremi. So this is at the start of the 20th century. What does he write? We were terrified beyond all else by the disastrous state of human society today. Again, that sounds like 2022 to me, but it's 1903 and the Pope's already terrified by this. For who can fail to see that society at the present time, more than at any other past age, is suffering from a terrible and deep-rooted malady. Which developing every day and eating into its inmost being is dragging it to its destruction. You understand, venerable brethren, talking to the bishops here, what this disease is apostasy from God. That which in truth nothing is more allied to in ruin. When all this is considered, there is good reason to fear, lest this great perversity may be, as it were, a foretaste. And perhaps the beginning of those evils which are reserved for the last days. He says things have gotten so bad and you know what the problem is. It's there. we're rejecting God. Apostasy from God. And because of that, it sure looks like we might be at the beginning of what are going to be the last days. the, The end times. So Pope Pius X is already seeing this. and He's saying you should know what the problem is. Well, that apostasy from God has only gotten worse in the last 100 years. So it's only gotten more intensified. And that's what Our Lady of Fatima is also coming to stop and to prevent and to resist. We could also look at Pius XI in Quas Primus. He writes this in 1925. This is following the Great War. World War I, we call it, but it was a Great War at that time that really destroyed much of Christian civilization throughout Europe. And he writes, he's referring to other documents he's already written, but Pius XI will say the chief cause of the difficulties under which mankind is laboring These manifold evils in the world are due to the fact that the majority of men have thrust Jesus Christ and his holy law out of their lives, that these have no place either in private affairs or in politics. And we said further, that as long as individuals and states refuse to submit to the role of our savior, there would be no real hopeful prospect of a lasting peace among nations men must look for the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ. And he talks about how Christ and His church are the one source of salvation. So he basically says, Pius X, talking about apostasy from God, Pius XI is now saying, look, we've rejected Christ. In our civil societies, in our public societies, we've cast Him out. He is the king, but we've cast Him out. So we've got this real big problem in not acknowledging Christ's kingship over all facets of our life. And he says, you're never going to find peace if you're not following Christ the King. And Our Lady, by the way, is promising what? Our Lady at Fatima promises world peace. So if you connect that with what Pius XI is saying, you realize, well, that's not going to happen unless we're under Christ's kingship. Obviously, our Blessed Mother wants us to be under Christ's kingship. She's the Queen. He's the King. So that's going to have to come together. But again, here the Popes are telling us the problems. Apostasy from God, rejecting Christ the King. Pius XI, as we lead up to the Second World War, this is much after Hugh was telling us the things that Lenin was doing, Stalin was doing in Russia. The world is seeing what an atheistic, communist country does to its people, the starvations, the famine, depriving them of their human dignity. So Pius XI has also seen this, and he writes a document against atheistic communism called Redemptor in 1937. Here's some of what he writes there. Just listen to how he describes communism, that it conceals, communism conceals in itself a false messianic idea. So it's going to try to put itself forth as a different kind of gospel with its own messiah, its own kind of salvation, that it wants to begin a new universal civilization. Sounds to me a little bit like New World Order and Great Resets. Okay? A new universal civilization which aims at upsetting the whole social order and at undermining the very foundations of Christian civilization. That's what communism is about. It strips man of his liberty. It robs human personality of all its dignity. It removes all the moral restraints that check the eruptions of blind impulse. There is no recognition of any right that the individual has in relation to the collectivity. It holds a principle of absolute equality, rejecting all hierarchy and all divinely constituted authority, including the authority of parents. Okay, this is what he's writing in 1937 that communism is about. He goes on to explain how it attacks marriage and family life, how it operates on half-truths and deceptions, and therefore errors spread, and people believe the errors that it uses a well-organized propaganda and a conspiracy of silence. This sounds a lot to me like the cancel culture. This sounds a lot to me like a lot of errors being spread through mass propaganda that is well-organized, that tell you many things that are not true right now. Terror reigns. There is a culture of fear. People act out of fear under communism. And then, of course, there are martyrdoms. And ultimately, Pius XI writes, a godless civilization results. If you go back and you read this document and you sort of try to just step away and disassociate yourself from the idea that this could be about a Marxist communism in Russia, you actually read this and you're like, whoa, this is about the communism that is in our world right now. Again, Our Lady of Fatima warning about the errors of Russia spreading to every nation. I said in our world right now, I meant in our nation right now, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our cities. It is here, again, because we haven't listened to Our Lady of Fatima, but the Pope's had all these answers, okay? They had the antidote. They were trying to fight the fight. Now, I argue that one of the reasons that Our Lady comes in 1917 is because at that point in time, the popes are going to stop fighting the fight as hard as they needed to. And Our Lady sort of knew that, but it's going to take an even harder step after 1958 where the popes are really not going to fight the fight. And so up until then, Our Lady hadn't come, and God hasn't sent her yet because the popes were fighting the fight and providing the antidote. But there was a time when the popes and the other pastors of the church were going to fall silent. And Our Lady knew this. And so she came at that time to say, now I'm going to have to come help you because these other voices are not going to be speaking the truth as you need to hear it. So we have, I think, an understanding now of the problem. Certainly the popes explained it. Back to the solution very quickly. We could say a lot about consecrate because that's part of the solution. Hugh also talked about that. All I'm going to say now is what it is. It's to make something sacred by setting it apart for a very special divinely elected role that God is calling it to. So when Russia is to be consecrated, it's going to be set apart from the other nations and given a very special role for a holy and divine mission that God is calling it for. Okay, this great salvation of many souls, this world peace. So it is a great privilege to be consecrated in this manner. And it's God who will be pouring out His grace through the vehicle that is consecrated into the rest of the world. Right, so, I mean, you can think of the most common consecrations, for example, a priest. A priest is consecrated, he is set apart from the rest of people, he's called to have a very specific mission. For example, to forgive our sins, to offer the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, to bring grace into the world. And God wants to give all this grace to people, but He's going to do it through the priest. And because of that, the priest has been consecrated and set apart. And the priest no longer is the same living the way the rest of us live. He's celibate, for example. He wears his black cassock. He's obviously different from the rest of us. So something like that is what's taking place in consecration. And so that's an analogy you can use for what's supposed to take place for Russia. Uh, Which is, again, why it doesn't really make sense to try to consecrate the whole world and everything, because if you're consecrating every nation, how are you actually setting Russia apart? That'd be like saying, okay, every single man in the world is now consecrated a priest. You can all go say mass, you can all go forgive, sin. It, it doesn't work that way. That's not how it operates. Okay, this idea that everybody's a priest, prophet, and king, that was started by John Calvin, by the way. If you go back and look at history, you're not going to hear anything about everybody being a priest, prophet, and king prior to John Calvin. But I digress, so let me not. And instead, continue with the next big point. That's the Immaculate Heart. Again, so much could be said here. So, so, so much. And And it's beautiful. So I'm just going to give you a few, again, very short glimpses. I think when we talk about the immaculate heart, we should definitely think the purity. The purity of our Blessed Mother. Immaculate, without stain. Because she lives and exists for God alone. Okay? She is wholly consumed with God alone, which is ultimately what we all should be. Okay? But, but she is, perfectly. She has, therefore, this purity of body. We often think of purity in those terms, and that's certainly part of it. And that brings in all our morality and all our disciplines that we need. But she also has a purity of mind so that she has all true doctrine. She has the true faith, and no error can seep in because that would taint her purity. And she also has a purity in her heart. Again, living for God alone, which is where she gives God the perfect worship. She, she prays perfectly, so her worship is without any stain. It is the perfect and most fitting worship to render unto God. This is the Immaculate Heart and ultimately, this is the solution that the world needs. Okay, we need to be devoted to the Immaculate Heart because when you're devoted to the Immaculate Heart, what this devotion means, in a nutshell, the simplest way I could put it, again, you could expand a lot, but it's to know her heart and because you know her Immaculate Heart, you will love her Immaculate Heart and then you will imitate her Immaculate Heart. That, that's really the key, so you're going to live it out. So now you're imitating her Immaculate Heart, which means you are pure in your body. You are pure in your mind. You are pure in your heart. You have the true doctrine in your mind. You have the true worship of God in your heart that you want to render, the prayer. You know, you're living according to His right moral law, and you become more and more pure, immaculate, without stain, like your Most Holy Mother. And living for God alone. She's the perfect example. We're supposed to follow. She's the most united to Christ because of this purity. We're supposed to be like that. And the Immaculate Heart is the model as we're devoted to her and we come to know her more and love her more. We'll imitate her more. And this is what the world needs. Her her heart is full of charity. Her heart is extremely obedient. All of these are some of the key things we're going to need here with Fatima. She's extremely humble and she has suffered so much for us. And all of those things that are going to be entailed. I mean, the message of Fatima is talking about martyrdoms and the sufferings. The message of Fatima is about obeying God correctly, not the way we want, not in man ways, but in the way God has asked. So if you really understand the Immaculate Heart, you start seeing how, for example, this consecration that just took place wasn't it. Because the obedience to all of these things was lacking. Do we see coming from the Vatican purity in the faith, where the truths of the faith are being upheld? And taught correctly, this way they've been taught for 2,000 centuries. Of course not, for 2,000 years. We're, we're not seeing that. Do, do we see purity of worship? No. Instead, we're seeing the cancellation and the destruction of the Latin Mass, for example, the most ancient rite that comes back from the apostles. Okay, so all of these things are emanating from within our church. That doesn't show that we're devoted to the Immaculate Heart. The consecration can't be taking place in this, with, with these kinds of things coming forth. We're missing a lot of key components. And if we realized again what this means, I think it'd be very easy for us to see that this consecration failed quite a bit. Now, I'm going to get into Russia a little as we go through this, but right now I'll simply say that what we need is God's right order. And what happens on earth is supposed to mirror what happens in heaven. How do we know what we should be doing here on earth? Well, we're supposed to look at heaven and then follow the example. So, for example, here are just a few things. You look to heaven and you see the Blessed Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We just celebrated Trinity Sunday this past Sunday. And immediately you see a hierarchy. Yes, there's an equality because there are three persons and they're all equal and they're all one God and they're all almighty and they're all omniscient and they all have that divine will. So, there's one God. This is the great mystery of the Trinity. But there's still a hierarchy because the Father is Father and the Son is Son. Okay, there's a hierarchy right there. We speak of how the Father is the origin Right? And the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Son is the truth of God. Right? And then the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the Son. So, Hopefully right there you immediately in the Trinity already see a hierarchy. We talk about how the Holy Ghost is the love of the Father and the Son. And the Son is the word of God, the truth of God. Jesus Christ himself will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so you see how the love of God proceeds from From the very origin, the Father, and the truth. Origin, like all reality, all existence. So you have the existence and you have truth. Charity, love, proceeds out of that. I emphasize this because you can't have love without truth. So many people are so mistaken and they think that somehow love trumps truth or supersedes truth. Or you can have love without truth. No. Look to the hierarchy in the Trinity where you have Father and Son, and from there proceeds the Holy Ghost, only in the truth, and in reality, can you find an authentic love that brings forth life. That's what the Holy Ghost does. Okay, so this is us looking to heaven to see how things should be sort of established here on earth. We have to follow that hierarchy. And you're going to see it mirrored, by the way, in the family, with the father and the mother and the children. As well as the fact that God created us as a body and a soul, and He wants us united. Now we suffer here on earth in our body and death is the separation of our body and our soul and we know that our body gets buried into the ground but we believe in the resurrection on the last day. And so what this means is that for eternity our bodies and our souls will be united. Whether you're one of the damned in hell and then it's to your great detriment and greater pain or you're one of the elect in heaven and then it's to your greater glory that you have your body but everybody will have their body and soul Reunited for all eternity. That's how God has made us. Okay, death separates that temporarily until the final resurrection. So we have to have this union between body and soul. And then Jesus comes to save us and to establish one church. That's the whole point. He wants to save us so they were with him. The salvation of souls, which takes a center role in the message of Fatima. We're going to come back to all of these points in just a minute. And the last one is that Christ is King. Hopefully you're already seeing connections with what the popes were teaching us. And when we talk about Christ being king, we're talking about the church and the state working together and being united. Not divided and not separated. The separation of church and state is a great error. It's a diabolical error that goes against God's right order. Because for a society, and all of us are social beings, the church, you could say, sort of acts like the soul... And the state sort of acts like the body. The church has its proper sphere, which is to seek the human beings flourishing in the spiritual realm, which is ultimately the salvation of their soul. And the state has a role so that the human being will flourish in the temporal realm, in the goods of this earth. But the two have to go hand in hand. Because as a human, I'm a body and a soul together. And I can't separate those two. And so my spiritual good and my temporal good also go together. And I can't separate those two. And so if the state is really going to look out for my temporal goods, it cannot neglect my spiritual goods. Just like if the church is really looking out for my spiritual good, it can't neglect temporal goods. They both have to work together in harmony, just like my body and soul work together. And then Christ is king of all of that. And you have a Catholic empire. And that's ultimately what heaven is like. Heaven is a Catholic empire. With a hierarchy, with God the Father there. And here on earth, we have to mirror that. We have to be living that here. And we have really, really gotten far away from that. And that's what Our Lady of Fatima is coming to put back into place because it's going to be the only solution. The model for it is going to be the Immaculate Heart. But it's supposed to fix all of these errors and then we can have world peace because we have found it in the Kingdom of Christ. The peace of Christ is found in the Kingdom of Christ. We also have the Pope and the Bishop have to do this. There you see, because it's the authority of God ultimately, the Pope and the Bishop wield. Okay, The Pope is the Vicar of Christ. The Bishops are to be united to Him. Their job is to transmit truth to us. Their job is to keep unity in the Church, unity with the State, and they are to obey God and God's authority. And ultimately, that's why we obey the hierarchy. Well, we don't obey the hierarchy just to obey the hierarchy. It's because God is first, and he's put the authority of his church to the hierarchy that obeys him. And so then we're here and we're obeying God through the hierarchy. But if a hierarchy at some point in time tells you to go this other way and not obey God, but let's say, I don't know, obey Satan, well then you can't obey the hierarchy because then in obeying the hierarchy you're obeying Satan. I mean that should be very obvious to all of us. But some Catholics still aren't getting it and it just seems like they want to say just blindly obey whatever the authorities are saying. That's not correct. And this, by the way, again, I'll digress just briefly, but was one of the things that really turned the light bulb on for me when I read that book that I told you about, Popes Against Modern Errors. Because as I read Popes Against Modern Errors, see, I had been in the seminary, so I had read some of the modern encyclicals also and a lot of the modern theology. I was seeped in a lot of the sort of post-Vatican II theology. But what I very quickly realized, and no one had to tell me this because I was reading the Pope's own words, is I realized I have to disobey a pope. I don't want to disobey any pope. I always want to be obedient. But because popes are now contradicting other popes, no matter what I pick, I'm going to disobey one set of popes. And actually, every Catholic is in that situation. You don't want to be in that situation. None of us does, but it's reality. You're just not aware of it very often. So you need to be red-pilled, right? You need to find this out. Because when you read these encyclicals, you hear the popes telling us things that modern popes and modern bishops are saying completely the opposite. So if you go with the modern bishops, then you're disobeying all these other popes. And you're disobeying popes. Now, if you obey these popes, then you're quote-unquote disobeying these modern bishops. So let's just... This is part of the cross we have to carry today. We will be disobeying popes. And I can point out a number of places to you where that happens. But that's the sad reality of it. And Catholics have to come to understand that because then you realize, oh... Well, then it's not just so much about obeying the Pope, per se. It's that the Popes have to be giving us God's law, the truth of God, the purity in worship, the purity in doctrine, the true humility and obedience, right, that the Immaculate Heart is all about, and then that's going to show you the light and which way to go. And it's going to be very obvious, right? And as I said earlier, the Popes were giving us this great antidote to the problems of our day. So this is why the Pope has to do it, the consecration, in union with the bishops. So that they are all united and they show the unity of the church, the unity of the body of Christ under the truth of Christ. And that they do wield the authority of God. And that's why we obey. So all of these are these different sort of parts to the solution. Getting back to the problem, we already looked at it from the Pope's perspective. I would say you can also look at it Because Our Lady of Fatima explains it very clearly, especially in the three parts of the secret of Fatima that she reveals on July 13th, 1917. Again, the Immaculate Heart of Mary is the center for all of that. That's what she revealed on June 13th in the second apparition. And now she's going a little bit more into what this means. And the first secret is of all the souls falling into hell. And she talks about how we have to cease offending God. We have to belong to God. Therein again is the consecration. Cease offending him, belong to him. The eternal death, hell, is the greatest evil. Why? Because man is forgetting God. The apostasy that the popes were talking about. The rejecting of Christ. So if we do that, we'll offend him. And all these countless souls are falling into hell. So this vision of hell is very much connected to what the popes have been teaching. But our Blessed Mother is giving it to us in a very graphic, easy way. That even the small children at Fatima, Lucia, Francisco, and Jacinta can understand. But we should all be able to understand it that way. So souls falling into hell. This is a big problem. We've got to solve that. The second one is that she talks about how the errors of Russia will spread throughout the world. And we'll talk a little bit more about those errors, specifically in, in three forms. But I'll come back to that. And then you have also the third secret, which is largely still hidden. The words of our Blessed Mother in the third secret have not been revealed. They were supposed to be revealed in 1960, but they weren't. Finally, in 2000, we got half of the third secret. We got the vision part. Okay? But there's also words that Our Lady spoke, and those to this day, in disobedience to Our Blessed Mother's direct command, that they were supposed to be revealed to the world in 1960. That means to you and to me in 1960, we were supposed to know these words of Our Lady, that she came down from heaven to tell us, and we still don't know them. We do have a lot of hints, though, I'm not sure how familiar you are with this. This would really be its own talk, and there's plenty on this. But very simply, what that third secret largely deals with is the crisis in the church, especially a papal crisis and a crisis in the hierarchy of the church that stems from a changing of the doctrine, a changing of the worship, going against the purity of heart, the purity of the will. And then, of course, there's going to be an impurity in the body. Right, and so you have this great immorality that affects, for example, the Pope and the hierarchy and all the Catholic faithful. So there's going to be this great crisis in the church, changes in doctrine, worship, morals, discipline, great loss of faith on a universal global scale, a papal identity crisis where the Pope doesn't really understand his role as Pope also. The Pope plays a very important role in Fatima and Our Lady's warning us that he's not really going to know who he is. That's what this whole image is about, uh, Bishop dressed in white in a mirror and we had the impression that he's the Pope. There's a serious papal identity crisis and hopefully you all are realizing it by the year 2022 that there is a very serious papal identity crisis. But it's been going on for for decades now where the Popes are no longer acting as the Pope is supposed to act. This is part of the message of Fatima. Most likely Our Lady also spoke about an evil council and an evil mass that would facilitate many of these changes. What are the consequences for this? The great loss of souls and the errors of Russia spreading throughout the world. And the only way to stop it is the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Okay, so she's also telling us the problem through the three secrets. We titled this talk about Russia and we want to focus in on that aspect. So let's talk a little bit about the errors of Russia. Fundamentally and most importantly, I would say it's atheism. Atheism is the really big error of Russia. Now, Hugh has pointed out, for example, the intrinsic connection between evolutionism and atheism. The way people become atheistic very often is they're taught the false science, the erroneous science of evolution. And that's one step that's going to get them there. But atheism brings many, many more things in its wake. Yes, it had, you know, a lot of times people think of the Marxist economic component of communism. And that's certainly an error of Russia. And that's certainly going to come in with the atheism. But there's more, because the atheism is what the popes are talking about. That apostasy from God, that rejection of Christ and casting him out. And communism is also evolving, or or perhaps I should say devolving. We definitely saw communism devolve, especially, for example, once all the satellite nations of the Soviet Union broke away, and the Soviet Union sort of ceased to exist as an entity, and it's now Russia... You know, we saw that in many ways, communism was untenable as this sort of Marxist economic system, political system. And so it started falling apart. But communism just evolved. I I say devolved, really. But this was already planned by the leaders of communism. And you can get their own quotes. Uh, Roberto De Mattei, in his book Love for the Papacy, has a good quote we should think about. He writes, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, communism's errors were as if released from the wrapping that contained them. It's almost saying it got worse, and yes, it did get worse. They were sort of contained in this, now they're released to propagate like an ideological miasma over the entire West under the form of cultural and moral relativism. Okay, so this is really what communism is devolving into, what communism is and when you think errors of Russia now think that. Think a cultural relativism, a moral relativism. Just look at the newspaper for sort of the last two or three, four years in this country, and you'll see that everywhere. We are seeped in it right now. Okay, this is what communism is about, and this is how it's evolved. So that's why we are living in a very communistic state right now, and the errors of Russia are in the very air we breathe and in the water that we drink because we didn't obey Our Lady of Fatima. All of this, though, makes sense if you understand that if you believe that there is no God, atheism, communism, heirs of Russia, well, then the state becomes supreme. The state gets to control you. And when I say the state, really understand it's the people behind the state because there's all those people that are controlling the state. Sometimes they're behind the scenes, sometimes they're obvious, sometimes they're the puppet masters, sometimes they meet in secret societies and are hiding in the shadows and are organizing great resets, sometimes they're on TV, sometimes they're not. I can't even name them all, I don't know who they all are, you know, Davos group that meets out there, the George Soros of the world, right? Um, there's a lot of different individuals and in some of the names we know, but if they can control the levers of the state, the powers of the state, then when we say the state is absolute, basically they're the ones that are absolute. And they're the ones that get to play God and control your life. Then see, if there's no God, rights do not come from God. I have no rights because I'm a human being, God made me. Rather, any right I have is because the state, in its benign magnanimity, is willing to give me. right. And therefore, the state can also take it away from me. This is where you get communism. So you don't have inalienable rights. Only rights that the state gives you when the state thinks it's convenient for you to have these rights. And then man just becomes a cog in a machine because the state can give them to you and take them away at will. And so you no longer have a right perhaps to travel or to breathe freely without cloth in front of your face or to not have you know, various things being injected into your body. You don't have those rights anymore because the state completely controls you. You're just a cog in the machine. You're there to serve the state. And if the state wants to kill you at any point in time, it can. And we're back to a pagan idea from Rome, the Homo Sachin. The Homo Sachin was the man in Rome who basically, you could kill him because he didn't have that value. And so his life at any point in time could be taken by the state or someone had a right to kill him. We're all becoming Homo Sachins back to this sort of pagan idea of pagan Rome under this communism. It used to be that the church could stop this. The church could act as an intermediary with the state. It happened many times throughout Christendom. If people's rights were abused and infringement on their freedoms, the church would step in and say, no, you can't treat people this way. But now the church has been co-opted. Its own hierarchy has decommissioned the church. And its own hierarchy is now working with a communistic, atheistic model, really, to promote these things. And so not even the church is standing in our way because, again... The church is now underneath the state in this communistic mode of living, these errors of Russia. So that's really this great error of Russia. Also, though, we cannot forget the error of schism, okay, because this is really the oldest error of Russia. Many of the other errors flow from it. I would argue you couldn't have gotten to the atheism if you hadn't gotten to the schism first. So we've talked about the schism in 1054, where East and West were split. There were many attempts to reunite them, both at the Council of Lyon in the 1200s, 1274, in the Council of Florence, 1444. The East, the Patriarch of Constantinople and his bishops, agree that they have to submit to the Pope and that the Pope is the supreme authority. But at the Council of Florence, when they all sign on board and say, we're reunited, the Russian Patriarch said, no we will now establish ourselves as a third Rome. Moscow has equal dignity with Rome and Constantinople, and we won't submit to the Pope. So even when the East was ready to reunite with the West, and there was a reunification for a while, now the fall of Constantinople by the Muslim, the Turks, deflated that, and it didn't really materialize throughout history, so we still remain in schism right now. But in principle, the East always recognized it, and has always come back. But unfortunately, the Russian Patriarchate didn't. Okay, so they still need to come back. And that's the schism that remains there. There are, I would say, four good years to remember with this growing, this growing revolution. And that's, I've given three dates before, I'm going to give a fourth. So if you've heard some of my talks, you know 1917 is the Bolshevik Revolution. And of course, that's when Our Lady Fatima comes. 200 years before that, 1717 is when the Grand Lodge is organized in London And Freemasonry is really growing, which is what spurs on the French Revolution. And of course, 1517 is when Martin Luther posts his 95 Thesis and Protestantism begins. And they're all natural outgrowths of each other, which is what I hope you realize. That because of Protestantism, the church was greatly weakened, and it opened the role for deism and Freemasonry to enter in. And because the Freemasons advanced their ideals of egalité, liabité, fraternité, and many other errors, that fostered and fermented the Communist Revolution. And so the revolution has just sort of been rolling like an avalanche and intensifying. So they all are linked. And so I just thought to myself, well, why not look back 200 years earlier and see what happened then? And I was actually very surprised. 1317 is an interesting year because in many ways revolutions already started there. I've often talked about how the height of Christendom was the time of Thomas Aquinas and the Summa. So we're in the late 1200s of the great cathedral of Schartz being built. Time of the greatest Catholic monarchs like King St. Louis IX in France and his cousin, King Ferdinand III of Castile, who resisted heresy, who fought against the infidels, who honored the church and her laws, who ruled their subjects so as to foster the common good and, above all, the salvation of their souls. The Catholic kingdom had really come into its own, a high point in man's civilization where countries on earth were striving to mirror reality in heaven, God's right order. You know, we've reached a kind of zenith in Christian civilization where all of Europe is under Christendom, and it's a very Catholic time. But then things started to spiral down and fall out of control. We had the Avignon Papacy. We're going to have the Great Western Schism, where we have two popes. We're going to have Muslim invasions that wreck us. We're going to have the Hundred Years' War, where Christian England and Christian France are fighting. You know, that's the time of Joan of Arc. So all of these things are going to start sort of happening after that. Well, interestingly enough, in 1317, Pope John XXII issued a document, Santa Romagna, and it was against what was called the spiritualists of the day. So the spiritualists of the days were particularly strong in the Franciscan order. Uh, Francis, interesting connection. And you can go back to a man called Joachim de Fiore, who was a monk who was maybe the one who started this. Uh, We recently put up a good sermon on St. Vincent Ferrer's website about Joachim de Fiore, but he was one of the sort of original spiritualists. Some of these ideas, you're going to hear them like today. They basically believed that this was a new era, a new age of the Holy Ghost. We might say a springtime, a new Pentecost. That's kind of what they were believing back in those days. And the Holy Ghost was going to speak through them because they were very spiritual people. And they were going to have a certain ascetical life. And they didn't need doctrine because, you know, you're in this new age, a new ageism. All these things that were coming back today, so it's not that new, it's still there. So they were all into the spirit, no doctrine. In fact, part of this was even a reaction against the scholasticism of men like Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure, the great theologians. There's one man called William Ockham, he was a Franciscan, he came up with a philosophy called nominalism. I won't get into all of that, but nominalism was basically opposed to the scholastic theology. And he basically wanted to say, no, no, you guys are trying to like, put God in a box and you think you know everything about God. We, we can't know anything about God. You, know, you can't know about God. You've got to connect to God through the Spirit. That's why you don't need doctrine and you don't need theology and you don't really need the faith because it's just all in this new age where the Spirit's going to outpour on us who are the holy and enlightened ones. Sounds a lot like stuff going on today. And so John the 22nd had to issue a document to say this is wrong. It should not be happening. Interesting things, though, about John the 22nd. Most people who know his name know history because he's one of the popes that committed heresy. Interesting. Interesting connection. He was denying truths about the beatific vision and he got called to task on his heresy. So as a pope, he was teaching heresy. He was one of the Avignon popes. He had left Rome. He was no longer sort of being faithful to that. And he was really into the greed and the opulency and the power of the papacy and the Avignon court. That was quite corrupt. So, again, you see all these sort of problems in the papacy although he's still doing some good things and putting out this document. But there are certainly many parallels between the problematic papacy of John Twenty Second and the corrupt papacy of the post-Vatican II period. If you haven't heard already, listen to Julie Maloney's talk on Fatima and the St. Gallen Mafia and her, her book, how that's affected what's going on in the church today, intentionally trying to change it to accept false teachings, terrible morals. And so what we have right now is clearly many, many, many more magnitudes, worse. Also, witchcraft was on the rise. The occult movements were on the rise. He had to issue a document saying that it was heresy to be involved in witchcraft. And so all of these things are percolating in Europe at that time, and it's going to explode, as I said, in the Great Western Schism, which then leads to the Protestant Revolution. Again, the Protestant Revolution couldn't have happened if he hadn't had the Great Western Schism. So what do we see? We see in 1317... A splitting up from the Holy Ghost. This spiritualism is like a heresy against the Holy Ghost. Body and soul being split up. So then in 1517, you reject Christ and his church. You reject the Son. And so in 1717, you reject God's fatherhood. And you just have deists. And so in 1917, you reject God altogether. And you're down to atheism. So it's real interesting how we've had this sort of going against the Trinity in these successive sort of 200-year stages to the point that we rejected God completely. This is all wrapped up in this growing revolution that are the errors of Russia and the Immaculate Heart of Mary comes to resolve for us. Last big error of Russia is how church and state are to be divided. So we've already talked a little bit about how the church and state need to be together together. And that has been one of the main points of attack of the revolution, to separate church and state. Because by doing this, it's like death to man's society. Just as splitting the body and soul is death to the individual. And this idea comes from the Freemasons and from liberal thinkers. Our nation is founded on it. It was spread by the French Revolution. And basically, every nation on earth and leaders within the church have adopted this error. And once this error is accepted... As the popes themselves teach, like Leo XIII, civilization will be destabilized and deteriorate to a point where absolute tyranny by the state is possible. Because see, in reality, there is no separation that's, that's possible. Rather, when you say that they're separate, it's simply code for saying that the state is in charge, that the state is above the church. It dominates the church. Religion, faith, etc., all those things are there to serve the dictatorial whims of the state. This was true of pagan Rome. For all pagan nations of old, religion served the state. The Byzantine emperor often tried to do this as well. Only Catholicism strikes the right balance. Protestant rulers in Germany and England, they broke away from Rome because they wanted to control the church, its land, its wealth, its influence. And the same happened in Russian Orthodoxy where the Tsar wants to rule over the Patriarch of Moscow and use the Church to facilitate the aims of the Russian Empire. If we just look a little bit at the history of the Holy Roman Empire, what you'll see is that you had pagan Rome, and then pagan Rome got converted and became imperial Catholic Rome, like with Constantine and Theodosius and some of the other great popes. And so now you had a Catholic Empire where the Pope and the Emperor were working together. That'll be split into East and West, and the West will be run over by the barbarians. So for a while, the empire in the West falls apart. It continues on the East in Constantinople with the Byzantium emperors. For a while, they're even appointing the popes. So, for example, Gregory the Great, he was approved by the Byzantine emperors. Now, there were times that the Byzantine emperors abused their power because they would go and tell the pope, no, we don't like what you're doing. And they would drag him off in chains like they did the St. Martin's in the 600s because they were promoting various heresies in the East. And the popes would tell them those are heresies. There were other political issues, religious issues. Um, but you had the Byzantine emperor very often trying to control the church and use the church for the good of the state. The state and the church still together, but with the state on top of the church. And that's this heresy called Cesaro-Papism, where the Caesar, the emperor, also thinks he's the pope, or at least can control the pope. And so for centuries, we're talking about for five, six hundred years, that battle is taking place within the church where it's having to resist. Iconoclasm stems from this, the great heresy from the East and other problems. And this is when the East is falling into heresy and schism, but coming back, falling out and coming back. So that's going on with the Byzantine emperor. But you still have kind of a a union of church and state, though not always the correct and healthiest one. Uh, Then, of course, you have France, the eldest daughter of the church, Clovis, the barbarian, accepts baptism, and so now we have a barbaric nation that becomes Catholic, and that will eventually lead on to them stopping the Muslims at the Battle of Tours, 732, right? Then Pepin the Short, who gives the Papal States to the Holy Father. So he has to defend the Holy Father from the Lombard barbarians, and to do that he gives them the Papal States. That's the donation of Pepin, I think it's 754, 746, right around there. And then you have Charlemagne, Charles the Great, this king of France, king of the Franks, eldest daughter of the Church, who reestablishes the Holy Roman Empire. And his Holy Roman Empire extends nearly all of Europe. At a time, there are even going to be marriages between the Holy Roman Empire from the West and the Byzantine princess from the East. Okay, so again, you've got sort of most of the civilized world under this Christian Catholic Empire, again in the West and again in the East. And then again, we're going to reach that zenith we talked about in 1250. And then it's all going to sort of begin to crumble and to fall apart. So how is this great Christian Empire falling apart? Well, you successively, the different parts of the empire fall apart. For example, Constantinople in 1453, the Muslims invade. And so the east falls and we no longer have the Byzantine Empire. And then you have the French Revolution that attacks the altar and throne in France, which was part of Charlemagne's empire. And that's going to fall apart. Now, there's another emperor, Napoleon III, who comes in. But the Franco-Prussian War gets rid of him and he abdicates. And so the French Empire is gone. That part. And the French Revolution will carry these ideas of destroying altar and throne throughout all of Europe. Revolutions were breaking out in all the major cities. For example, 1848, the year of revolution, Berlin, Rome, Prague, many more. These errors of the so-called Enlightenment, really it's the darkening, spread to Europe's colonies in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. The United States had already been founded on them. So throughout the 19th century, which is the century of revolution, Christ's kingship is steadily being eroded. And the popes were fighting against this, resisting this, explaining how it would lead to terrible calamities, basically to what we're living in right now, a new world order and a pagan one, a post-Christian pagan one worse than the pagan one before. And that's why you have to read those popes against modern errors. You'll see this is exactly what they were saying. Now, back to the history of the empire in the West. Well, Charlemagne's empire had been split into two, what basically became France and what kind of became Germany. In fact, often when you study the Holy Roman Empire, it's that central part of Europe, kind of extending from the top of Germany down to parts of the boot of Italy. So there's still that part. Well, that part is going to get destroyed. It becomes the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Many of you, if you look at World War I, you know about that. World War I did away with that. So the last vestiges here the empire in the West, when the Treaty of Versailles is signed in the Hall of Mirrors, okay, and the Austrian-Hungarian Empire abdicates his right, he is no longer an emperor. And that's one of the big, big things about the Great One. That's when Our Lady Fatima came. When the empire is dissolving, what also happened, the papal states that the Pope had been given, well, the Italian Revolution takes those over. And so from 1870 on, Pius IX becomes a prisoner in the Vatican. Successively, the popes are prisoners in the Vatican until you get the Lateran Treaty. And so in the Lateran Treaty, 1929 is when Pius XI settles the Roman question by signing this treaty with Mussolini and saying, I no longer have any temporal right, which is wrong for the Pope to do. Because if the Pope is Christ's vicar and Christ is king, he does have temporal authority. But now the empire is basically gone, all in legitimate ways because the rulers abdicated. See, in 1870, the Pope kept saying, no, I still have this land. But in 1929, the Pope says, okay, I willingly give it up. Just like after the First World War, the Austro-Hungarian Empire says, okay, I willingly give it up. And so time and time again, it's been willingly given up, this Christian empire, and it's successively been destroyed by this revolution, this diabolical revolution, that the devil is trying to destroy all God's right order, so that things in earth do not mirror how things are in heaven, but are rather completely upside down. Now here's one thing that I found Fascinating. And there was a priest who tipped me off on this just a couple of years ago, and so I've been reading more and more on it. And again, I want to share this with you. Like you said, some of this is not de fide, but it makes perfect sense to me with all of this. So let's look at the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. Because that's when they basically killed the Tsar of Russia. And so the Tsar of Russia did not abdicate. The Tsar of Russia, he did not lose his empire legitimately. And God will not honor things that are not done legitimately. And so the empire there was not taken away legitimately. Let's go back to what happened in Constantinople in 1453... when the Muslims invade. Okay, So they invade, and that's also not legit. Okay, This war was not legit. The Muslims had no right doing this. The Ottoman Turks under Mehmed the Great coming in. Probably very few of us know this history. There was a great emperor called Manuel II. He's ruling from 1391 to 1425. He has four sons. John becomes emperor because he's the oldest when his father dies. But then John dies... And he's no heir. So then Constantine the Eleventh becomes emperor. He also left no heir. And Constantine the Eleventh is actually Emperor when the Muslims attack and destroy Constantinople. So he's got two brothers left, Demetrius and Thomas. And both of them made some efforts to get the Empire back, but Demetrius ultimately really kind of got chummy chummy with the Sultan. And Thomas wasn't. Thomas was trying to get the West to come help him get Constantinople back. For a while they ruled in Greece. Eventually, Demetrius kind of filters off into the distance, becomes a monk, and has no heirs either. Thomas keeps trying to fight to get the empire back. And he's obviously the rightful emperor of the Byzantine Empire, which is a Christian empire. He has two sons, Andreas and Manuel. Andreas, I think he tried to do what his father did. He's living in Venice. In the end, things don't work out so well for him. I think he got into some debauchery. And he winds up selling his rights to the crown, to the King of France, hoping that the King of France would go and reclaim his emperor. It's, it's, and the King of France couldn't do it. So then he says, okay, well, the rights are mine. And he gives them to Ferdinand and Isabel. So they kind of get transferred over there, but he's selling them. And once you sell them, I mean, he's kind of lost his birthright. That sounds very scriptural, selling your birthrights. The oldest son selling birthrights, things of that sort. Manuel is the other one. Manuel's even sadder because Manuel, who could have been the king, actually goes back, throws himself at the feet of the Sultan, and says, like, I want to live here and I'm going to accept the Muslim faith. And so his sons become Muslim, and they certainly abdicate. So it looks like it's all over, right? Well, not quite, because there was a daughter, a woman, Sophia, or Zoe. And she gets taken to Venice with her dad when her dad, Thomas, flees over there. And ultimately, Pope Sixtus takes care of her as a ward, and he raises her, and she becomes Catholic. So we have an Orthodox who becomes Catholic, living in the papal court in Rome. Sophia then, the Pope gets to basically decide who she's going to marry— He has several people he's considering, but in the end, he marries her off to the Grand Prince of Russia. And she becomes the grandmother of the first Tsar of all Russia, Ivan the Terrible. And so you have that imperial crest, which has got the two-headed eagle, which represents church and state, united. That's why that's always the imperial crest, that eagle. It's carried on into Russia through the Byzantine side. ...through this woman, Sophia. And so the monarchy is still there. The Christian empire is still there. And in Russia is where, again, it was never abdicated. It was never taken away correctly. So it's still there. It's still there. And the union of church and state is still possible. But because if you study history, I think it's not going to happen... ...except through Russia. Hence the need to consecrate Russia and Russia alone... ...and not the whole world... Because it's going to bring back this union of church and state. Under a holy pope, under a great monarch. The great monarch might actually be French. I wouldn't be surprised because there's a lot of prophecies about a great French monarch. Could be like a Russian princess. Could be a marriage again, as we've seen, east and west united. This great schism that is the problem that has happened between east and west, like on a theological level and on a faith level and on the level of the bishops. But we've also seen on the level of the empire, the state all of that needs to be reunited and brought back together so that the church is indeed one with both East and West together, right? And so Russia playing a huge role there. That's where the schism is here. This is why Russia's got to be consecrated so that it won't be in that schism anymore. And then the empire, we see that the vestiges of the empire are there. Like all these pieces just really start falling into place. And I just look at this and I'm amazed. I'm like, wow, God is so amazing when all of these things start kind of falling into place. I'm sure there's much more. Just this little bit might be opening your eyes to why it's so important that Russia be consecrated. How we're going to mirror heaven, right? We've seen many things already. The errors of Russia have really grown. So we're going to have to go against those. Schism being the first one. But then this revolt that's been centuries in the making. We've already gone all the way back to 1317, against God has culminated in these eras of Russia. Atheism, evolution, the destruction of marriage and the family, radical feminism, abortion, the state tyranny, man just being a cog in the machine with no rights, with no dignity, no freedom. This is the point we've gotten after these centuries of revolution and all of this will be undone by the Immaculate Heart of Mary and the worldwide devotion to her heart. They've spread to the whole world. Now we're under a cultural Marxism, this tyranny of relativism, which is seeking to establish a one world order with this great world reset, well, that is God's plan to have one church, one state, one great Catholic empire mirroring heaven, where the Pope and the state work together, the church and the state work together for our good. And so the devil's got the exact opposite. A one world order where everything works against our good and we're treated as as just machines with no dignity, with no imago Dei, that we're not made in the image and likeness of God this Catholic church, one Catholic church, with one Catholic empire, with Christ as our King. That's the only solution. And the only way we get there is through the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And the vestiges of all that in this dormant state sort of lie there with, with Russia. And that's why Russia really is a key you know, and even the things that like I think Hugh was talking about how they've they've had these prophecies there and they've made efforts to get back at different times. St. Joseph is another saint from their times that tried to bridge the union, you know, in the 1600s, talked about the Tsar trying to get them reunited. So it's like there's always this impetus where we're trying to get the schism to heal and the one church to be together. And of course, the devil's working very hard against it. So we're reaching a climactic moment here in in history. And, and Our Lady has stepped in with the only solution but we've got to listen we've got to obey her and this is why the consecration of Russia alone is so important because you have to understand what is going on and ultimately you just have to be obedient to her and all the other elements of the, why the Pope is important the Pope in union with the bishops the reparation against all the sins because we've offended God the unity in the church but remember we're trying to imitate what's in heaven the Immaculate Heart of Mary does that most perfectly right? and that's, that's why the Immaculate Heart of Mary will bring this about and hopefully now you understand how history will also reveal the special role of Russia. Why God has said, Russia has been entrusted to her Immaculate Heart. In the end, it will be hers. It will not be lost. Her Immaculate Heart will triumph. And the world will have peace. So we win. That's the good news. And it is great. But how much suffering is going to take place before then, I don't know. You know, Christ did rise from the dead. But our Blessed Mother certainly suffered very much on Holy Saturday and Good Friday. Uh, so we're in, we're in for our Good Friday and our Holy Saturday, I think. In these, in these coming years, but stand fast to the faith and stay devoted to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Thank you very much, and may God bless you. This presentation has been brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. For more resources regarding the Catholic faith and the message of Fatima, and to support this vital apostolate with a donation, please visit our website, Fatima.org or call us at 1-800-263-8160. So many need to hear the message Our Lady brought the world at Fatima, of devotion to her Immaculate Heart, the communion of reparation on First Saturdays, daily prayer of the Rosary, to cease offending God, of penance and prayer, prayer for the Pope, and the necessity of Russia's consecration to her Immaculate Heart. For the glory of God, the honor of Our Lady, and the salvation of many souls, please share the Fatima message with everyone you know, and may Our Lady reward you. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us.